Good morning. How is everybody doing today? Good. Nice to see everyone. Uh, we are continuing now in our study of laws of cleanness and uncleanness. For those of you who are visiting today, if anybody's not here on a regular basis, you're probably saying, you mean to tell me we're having a whole Sunday school time on laws of cleanness and uncleanness? I've never heard a Sunday school class like that. What in the world? Are you going to be able to apply it to me? Or we're just going to sit here and, and uh, listen to all kinds of, of obscure, you know, you should do this, you must not do that. Uh, what does that have to do with me? Well, I hope that by the end of the hour, you will see what it has to do with you. Uh, we talked last week about how <clears throat> is somebody going through a period where the priest had declared them unclean uh, was, a, was a very serious time of trial for that person because they would have had to go live outside the camp, pitch a tent somewhere, and uh, they would not be with their families. They would be all by themselves or with a small other group of people who had to live off by themselves and uh, they, it was no fun at all. It was very difficult. They would get lonely. They would long for the time when they would be back with the worshiping community, going to the tabernacle, offering uh, sin offerings and peace offerings and uh, you, know, you name it. Uh, and so <clears throat> they were just they would probably say every day to themselves, maybe multiple times a day, how much longer am I going to endure this? And then maybe somebody might say, why me? Why am I going through this? I think that we need to be careful, you know, what questions we ask when we are going through something that we wish would end. Because that's the wrong question to ask. The Lord doesn't have to tell us why something's happening. And most of the time, he doesn't. Unless, of course, we're going through something that's a direct result of our own sinful actions. But remember, we've said that when a person would come down with some sort of spot on their skin or a house that was unclean or they, they had been wearing some unclean apparel or they, as we're going to see in chapter 15 today, or they just had something, uh, redu you know, basically under the category of bodily discharge, uh, they weren't sinning. This is just a normal part of living for uh, most of these things that cause uncleanness. And so it was, we also learned last week, at least in the case of the uh, house that was declared unclean, it was the Lord himself who put that uncleanness in the walls of the house. And we all entertained the idea that maybe, well, that applies to the other things that cause uncleanness too. Maybe the spot on the skin, the Lord has caused that, or the spot on the clothing, 
Uh, the Lord has called that, or has planned that. So why in the world would the Lord do that? Once again, we don't know why, but we, we say maybe there is a purpose in this kind of condition where somebody would be declared unclean for a set amount of time. Either for a day, of course, some, some things you're only unclean for a day. Other things, you are unclean perhaps for a long time till that spot on your skin resolved and you didn't have it anymore. Then you could get <clears throat> cleansed and you'd be back within the community again. But, um, you know, perhaps the purpose I say here also may have involved causing his people to have a longing for the time when God would cleanse away all unrighteousness once and for all time. So this ultimately resulted in a hope that Messiah would come into the world and be the ultimate seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Way back to Genesis 3.15. In a way, you could even look at everything from Genesis 3.15 and following as what the rest of the scripture talks about. The rest of the scripture is going to show man, Paul tells us, the purpose of the law is to show us our transgression and our sin. And even these things, laws of cleanness and uncleanness, where just being alive causes us to be unclean. These are things which, say, which cause in our hearts a plea. Lord, how long will this kind of thing continue? As Solomon expresses it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is hevel. It's vanity. Or, as, as I've interpreted it for myself, it, it's speaking to the frustration of life. Remember when you were younger, may say 15? Did you have any, or maybe you did, uh, did you, but I, I, I think back to those days and I think, wow, I didn't have to worry about a hip hurting me <laughs> like it does now. I need another hip replacement. I'm putting it off because I don't want to do it, but I know it's coming. Uh, why me? Well, no, that's the wrong one. Remember, that's the wrong question to ask. The question uh, is rather, why not, what is the purpose that the Lord has in this thing that, you know, hampers me? And uh, the older we get, the more things pop up that hamper us. I can remember, for instance, when, the, uh, I, was, when I was working at BJ teaching, and, and the, they announced a, a medication uh, program whereby uh, the school would cover the cost of certain meds. All right, so I look at Linda, who's sitting next to me at the faculty meeting, and I say, what good is that going to do us? You know, every once in a while I have a headache, I take a couple of Tylenol. 
Well, I got to a point in my life where I found out how beneficial that could be. It started first when my doctor looked at me and said, you know, your blood pressure is getting too high. Okay, well, you know, there's blood pressure medicine. And then I could go on with a litany of medications that have been added since then. The older I get, the worse it gets. And uh, <laughs> that, But you know what? That's coming to an end someday. How many of you are looking, we'll do the show of hands here. How many of you are looking for the time when you have a resurrection body? Yeah, boy, me too. Uh, if, if you would ask my 15-year-old self, hey, you want to go to glory and have a resurrection body someday? I would have said, ah, I think I want to stay here a while longer. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it's, it's changing. God has a purpose. He wants us to have an anticipation for when our, our Savior returns in glory, brings all of human history to a wonderful conclusion, and we will be with him forever, and we will, at the resurrection, have new bodies, not any longer subject to pain or sorrow or anything like that, but a body like unto his glorious body, as Paul says. This is why Jesus performed so many miracles involving cleansing from uncleanness. You look and you see, how many times during the gospel accounts does somebody need uh, healing as a direct result of their uncleanness? Uh, look, for instance, at Matthew 8. All the synoptics include this, uh, this particular uh, episode. And so in uh, verse, uh, what, let's start at verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great clouds followed him, and behold, a leper, there is somebody who had been declared unclean, came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's a good statement. Here is someone who has accepted for his life whatever God has sovereignly planned for him. There was nothing he could do about his skin condition, and so he was waiting patiently and prayerfully for the time when he would be healed. So he wonders, well, is it the Lord's will to heal me at this time? It may be, it may not be. When we pray for ourselves or for others that healing would take place in their lives, it's well to remember that God has a will about this. Maybe the leper thought, it's not time for me to be clean yet, but oh, I wish it were. And I know in my, I'm convinced 
that here is the Messiah, and if it's his will to make me clean, he can do it. I'm fully assured of that. And so he comes and he kneels before Christ, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. The perfect, sinless Son of God, obviously clean himself, touched a leper. What would that have done under the law instantaneously? That would have made Christ unclean. But did it? Oh, no, no, no. He, that was a touch of healing. And the instant he, he touched that leper, the leprosy was gone. And immediately, the text tells us, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest. Why would he do that? Well, that was the only way to become officially cleansed. You had to go have the priest examine the once leprous spot. Uh, Remember we have said that leprosy wasn't necessarily, or probably at all, Hansen's disease, that which we think of as leprosy today, but it was some unusual inflamed place and uh, some people want to say well it was psoriasis who knows exactly probably a multi-form particular problem that the person had and uh, so now that the priest sees what happened and no doubt the priest would have said how is it my my brother that you have been made whole like this What got rid of your skin condition? And and then the, the person would say, Jesus of Nazareth touched me, and I was free from my condition instantaneously. What do you think that's going to, what is the priest going to say about that? Remember, the priest during the time of Christ, was more of a political animal than he was a spiritual leader. The priests were a very privileged privileged category of individuals, especially in Jerusalem. They made money off of people who came and exchanged uh, their money that they brought with them for temple money so they could buy a sacrifice. You couldn't buy a sacrifice without temple money. And so the exchange rate was very favorable in favor of the priests. They made a lot of money this way. And they were very much politically active. And they were not much spiritual anymore. Yet, the Lord was gracious even to somebody like this and showed him, look what the Messiah can do. And this happened over and over and over again. 
as Christ healed people who were doomed to a lifetime of uncleanness, restored back to fellowship with the believing community. And then further, don't stop with just showing yourself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so here's, here's this former leper, cleansed of his, of his skin problems, and he knows exactly because of this, you know, all of our uh, stipulations in chapters 11 through 15, and then finally chapter 16, which we'll talk about next week, he knows exactly what sacrifices he must bring. And so he fulfilled all righteousness in that regard, and it was a testimony, a proof to, no doubt, this priest who could have cared less about the, uh, the spiritual aspects of his cleansing. Basically, what he wanted was uh, maybe some money or, or a, a, to benefit from his position. And, and that's what our Savior did over and over again. By every miracle of cleansing that our Savior did was more proof to the religious hierarchy of the day of just exactly who Christ really is. He's the one that the prophets foretold, the one who would cleanse unrighteousness, the one who prophets had anticipated. Look back, if you will, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. Christ's ability to do this healing from uncleanness was a result of his vicarious atonement for all Israel and for all people of all time. Notice verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God in affliction. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Yes. The question is, is healing a part of Christ's atonement? The answer is absolutely. The question is, when do we receive this healing? Does God promise us a life in this, as in this nasty now and now? Do we, do we have the promise that we'll get healed from ever from whatever besieges us? No. That's the message of the health and wealth gospel preachers. That's not the message of scripture. The real thing that healing brings, notice there's, there are two words here that talk about physical ailment. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Both of those concepts 
are physical griefs, physical sorrows, the things we needed healing from. Every time Christ healed somebody, he's showing just exactly who he is. He is the anticipated Messiah of Isaiah 53. And then, as we continue in the passage, he was pierced for our transgressions, our rebellions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are words of sin. So basically, when we have physical calamities, these are pictures of the fact that we are sinful. Sin manifests itself in, in disease. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, we would have never had one single disease. We would have never had Cain and Abel, the story of Cain slaying uh, Abel. We would not have all of the, tra- the turmoil and the wars and the, the disaster in the world ever since the Garden of Eden. But they did sin, and they brought on humanity a curse that could only be lifted by our Savior bearing our transgressions and our iniquities. And so the physical healings that Christ did were indicative of the healing from sin, the the taking of our iniquities on himself, dying in our place on Calvary's cross. And Leviticus is looking forward to that time at all these gospel accounts of healing are to show exactly who Christ was. But in in the final analysis, sometimes there is no sure answer for why, but rather we must ask the question, on whom must I depend? And just like this person, just like this leper, he knows who he can depend on. If it is the Lord's will to heal him, he'll have healing. And he did have healing. So, Remember, the next time you meet something in your life and you say, why? It's the wrong question to ask. Ask, what does the Lord intend to do in my life as a result of what I'm experiencing? Have you ever noticed who are the sweetest people in the world the ones who are closest to Christ, the ones who recognize clearly their dependence on him day by day. It's the people who what? Who suffer the most. If, if we have somebody and they've never been sick a day in their lives and they get to be uh, elderly and then they die in their sleep and go to be with the Lord, they've missed out on the kinds of things that will 
cause them to depend on Christ. Some people have never had any disappointment. They've never uh, suffered financial loss. They've prospered through their whole lives. Anything they want, they buy. If they don't have it, they didn't want it. They have lots of kids. Kids turn out to be senators and and, uh, businessmen. and uh, They're all prosperous too. No sickness in their family. Oh, I feel sorry for people like that. Because they don't get to have their eyes drawn to Christ, the ones that they must depend on. And so, I can think of some people who've suffered a lot. One discouragement after the other. One sickness after the other. One death after the other. Car accidents. Stillborn children. Disappointment. I know some guys who are in the ministry. They had a vision in their mind what the ministry was going to be like. And... It's not like what their ministry is like. They thought they would start a church. And the church would go rapidly as people flocked to hear their exposition and marveled at the gracious words that came out of their mouths and they'd talk it up and, and the, the church grows rapidly and there's, there are no people in the church that ever cause a problem. Yeah. Then get out in the ministry, start a church and see what the reality is. You've got problems. You've got problem people. Why are they there? I used to wonder. You know, being in the ministry would be terrific if it weren't for this person in my church. Oh no. No, no, no. That person's there to aggravate the living daylights out of you, so you're going to be uh, in prayer about the Lord working in his heart and the Lord working in your heart. Maybe your anticipation was, um, uh, you know, just wrong. And he's there for a purpose. All right. Leighton Talbert, in his book, we mentioned this just briefly last time, Beyond Suffering, wisely observed, God acknowledged that Job's suffering was without cause, but without cause is not the same thing as without purpose. Ah, indeed. Brother Talbert here is bringing up an important matter. Nobody we have account of in the Old Testament had greater suffering than Job. And Satan afflicted him, loss of everything he owned, loss of his health. He sits there in the ash heap, scraping himself with a potsherd. I don't know what that was, what kind of an ailment do you have that you, are, you, you get some small relief by scraping yourself with a potsherd? Wow. Miserable. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. But his suffering was not without cause. And it had a purpose. Because in the book of Job, we see that suffering is the catalyst to understanding who God is, what he's like, what his dealings are with man, and how his glory is infinite. And it's not our job to arraign the Lord himself before the court of justice and say, Lord, why are you allowing me to go through something like this? When I trusted you as my Savior, I didn't sign up for this. Who are we? And at the end of the book of Job, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I mean, I spoke about things I didn't know about, I didn't understand. Lord, you don't have to tell me why I went through what I've gone through. Rather, it's good enough for me to know that your greatness and your sovereignty are are unimpeachable. I don't have to know. And you know what? As far as we know, the Lord never told Job why he was suffering. The, the reader knows from right from chapter 1 why Job was suffering. Satan's activity. But Job didn't know that. Yet, by the end of the book, he comes to the point where he knows God well enough to say, I don't need to know why the suffering happened. Because I've gotten to know my God better. And now I understand that whatever his will is, is best for me. Talbert emphasizes that not one of us has suffered the way Christ did on the cross. As a result, he can cleanse us from all uncleanness and all unrighteousness. But it's up to us when we sin now as believers to come and confess our sins. And we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the the unrighteousness that we don't know about He's so gracious. We're cleansed from everything. Every sin of omission, every sin of commission, it doesn't matter. He cleanses us from all. All right, God also instructed his people that every aspect of human reproduction resulted in uncleanness. That's all about chapter 15. Now, do you think I'm going to read to you all the verses in chapter 15? What did I just tell you? This deals with human reproduction. And it could get embarrassing real quick. So if you want to get some nitty-gritty details, you go home, read Leviticus 15, and then I won't have to embarrass people by explaining it all to you. 
This chapter reminds us that everything related to the beginning of life and the end of, the, of life, from the first moment of conception to the final death of a person, and everything in between has a potential to make a person unclean. Uncleanness adheres to us just like mud to a pig in a wallow, and we didn't do anything to get in our unclean state. Unless, of course, there was some sort of obvious known sin that we had committed. Something like Miriam in rebellion against Moses. And she gets leprosy as a result of her rebellion. Okay, that's obvious. There was something connected to sin there. But oftentimes, this was not the case for the Old Testament believer. Canaanite culture had a horrendously bad view of human sexuality. Baal worship was foundationally a fertility cult, and the worshiper's system of belief gave them license to practice every single sexual perversion imaginable. So in in Baal epics that we dug up uh, in the uh, ancient city of Rashamra, or excuse me, the modern city of Rashamra, the ancient city of Ugarit, uh, these Baal epics gave us an insight, uh, starting with the uh, work of Claude Schaefer in uh, excavating Ugarit, gave us an idea of how bad Canaanite culture really was in this regard. Here's Baal, the son of Ael. And Ale builds him a house, and he lives in the house, and every time he's done with his wash water or whatever, he throws out his window, and it rains on the earth. So Baal was the one who sent rain on the earth. And Baal had a sister named Annet, and she was his, not just his sister, his lover. You say, oh, no. That's sick. Their God was incestuous? Yeah, and so were the worshipers of Baal. And I could go on here and and go through a litany of things that Baal worshipers believed, but once again, I'll spare you that, that lest I embarrass you to the point where you sink down in your seat and uh, cringe. Okay, but let's put it this way. Their belief in Baal determined their actions, especially in the realm of sexuality. They were perverse to the high heavens. Let's leave it at that. And the Lord's will was for his people to be the agents of his judgment on this kind of thing. The same thing that had been developing since the time of Abraham, at least 600 years before this time, when Israel was poised to go in and and conquer the promised land. The Lord was finally fed up with their sin. He knew his people had to be separate 
from this kind of perversion. They had to have a morality that only he could teach them. And so after the, the uh, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, we're going to get into a whole number of chapters that deal with every kind of imaginable sin uh, or any kind of, of deviation from God's expectations for his people. And of course, there's going to, you're going to see that there's all kinds of, of teaching on avoiding incest. This was, this was heinous in the Lord's sight. Why all this instruction? Why all these laws he sets forth uh, from chapter 17 through the end of the book in 27? What was the purpose of that? To show them that they must be separate from Canaanite wickedness. That was not optional. Lest they all make themselves candidates for judgment. God didn't want that. Situations the same in our cultures. Promiscuous attitude. Sinners today flaunt their perversion of God's moral standards to the point where even in Greenville, South Carolina, a place that has lots of believers, lots of good churches, what do we have every year? The gay pride, a pride event. It used to be back, say, during my dad's time growing up, Oh, there were a few homosexuals, but they wouldn't announce it. They, they would have their lifestyle very quietly, didn't want anybody to know about it. They realized this is not uh, a natural, normal thing. It was a perversion. And so they're very careful about that. But then somewhere along the line, they came out of the closet and they had slogans like, we're queer, we're here, get used to it. And now, as time has gone on, it's to the point where you could be charged with a hate crime simply for saying that homosexuality is a sin. Our society is getting worse and worse. How many movies a year come out of Hollywood and there's nothing objectionable in them? How many? I don't know. I haven't counted what came out last year. No bad language. No nudity. No casual sex, sexual activity. In our neighborhood, there are many young people who live together out of wedlock, and they even own a house together. Was That would have been, when I grew up, that would have been so scandalous. It would be almost unbelievable. In my town, we had a couple, and they, they, they had, these, this couple was good friends with another couple, and one day, the one husband looked at the other one and said, you know, 
I get along way better with your wife than I do with my wife. And you seem to get along better with my wife than you get along with your wife. So let's swap. We'll both get divorces and we'll remarry each other's spouses. Well, I don't think that anybody in the whole town didn't know about that. That was the most scandalous thing anybody could think of that had ever happened in DeWitt, New York, I declare. They lived real close to us. Uh, one of the, their son was, was a guy that came around and he didn't want to do anything strenuous. Uh, he ended up being, uh, well, part of the wrong movement. Uh, yeah, this is, this is something that uh, we deal with today. And just as God wanted his people, Israel, to be separate from all of this uh, disgusting, unbiblical lifestyle, so he wants us to be that way. We shouldn't say to ourselves, oh, well, look at how bad the world has gotten. I can be maybe closely approximating that uh, sin without ever participating really all in. No, the Lord wants us to be as far away from sexual perversion in any form, whether it be uh, heterosexuality out of bounds or homosexuality, which is out of bounds by, on the very face of it. So these are the kind of purposes that God has for these aspects of Levitical revelation. They speak directly to us about what kind of ethical people we should be and what kind of moral people we should be. As God required separation from the Canaanites in the Old Testament, so he requires that we repudiate Satan's world system of actions and attitudes because we are to be good testimonies for what Christ has done in our lives. He fulfilled the law for us. Now, we don't uh, adhere to biblical standards of conduct because we're somehow trying to fulfill a law that was done away with at the cross. No, we do so now out of love for our Savior. We follow his commands because, remember he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or, another translation, if you love me, keep my commandments, an imperative. Brian, what's the, what's the chosen uh, uh, best reading there, do you know? Okay, there's, there's a textual variant there. And, uh, but it doesn't matter because it's basically the same thought that it is love for Christ that produces obedience to Christ. This does not mean that we should have nothing to do with lost people. That'd be way the wrong conclusion to come with to. We have good news for them. 
Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly for us. In his earthly ministry, he cleansed unclean people. And that's what hope we hold out to for ourselves and for anyone else who will come to Christ for salvation. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word to us. We're thankful for uh, its application to our lives today. And we pray that you will help us to be good testimonies for uh, Christ in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.